can be seated. So there's only two stories left in our summer sermon series, which means there's only two Sundays left in summer, really. And I don't want to think about that, so we're just going to move on. We've been looking at the stories of Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings, and we've called this series The God Who Lives, because what we see as we look at these stories are two prophets called by God to rise up in the midst of a generation, a time when belief in God, or at least the God of Israel, was no longer to be taken for granted. It was now contestable. There were lots of other options. People were doing lots of other things, going off in other directions in worship. And so God called these two prophets, first Elijah and then Elisha, his successor, to rise up, to call the people back to God, to worship the God who lives, the only God who lives, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we find in these stories an opportunity to grow our own imagination for what it might look like to not just talk about a God who lives, but to live like it's so. So before we turn to look at the scripture passage in a moment, there's just one word of introduction. We're actually jumping back in time with this story. We skipped it a few weeks ago to do Naaman and Gehazi's stories. We're going to come back now, but there's a little bit of a jolt because If you've been here, Gehazi left and was no longer Elisha's servant, but now in this story, he's suddenly back again and Elisha's servant. So we've gone back in time, back from chapter 5 to chapter 4. Don't be alarmed. Before we open the word, though, let's pray, too, because the important thing this morning isn't that I say some things up here, but that God open our ears, our minds, and our hearts, and that God might speak to us through God's word, and by grace, through what I say as well. So let's pray. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find our peace. And it's in your way that we find our freedom. So come, O Lord, and shine upon us as we open your word, that we might see you more clearly and leave this place to follow. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that we love. One day, Elisha went to Shunem. A great woman lived there, and she urged Elisha to have something to eat. So every time he passed by that way, he would stop in and eat some food. And she said to her husband, look, I am sure that he is a holy man of God and he passes by regularly. Let's build a small room on the roof for him and put there a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that when he passes by, he might stay there. So one day, Elisha came there, headed up to the room on the roof and lay down. And he said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite woman. Gehazi called her, and Elisha said to Gehazi, Say to her, You have gone to such lengths for us. What can I do for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she said, I am content to live at home among my people. And Elisha said, What then? can be done for her. 
Gehazi said, well, she doesn't have a son, and her husband is old. And Elisha said, call her. Call her. So Gehazi called her, and she stood at the door, and Elisha said, about this time next year, you will be holding a son in your arms. And she said, oh no, man of God, sir, don't lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and gave birth to a son about a year later. This was what Elisha had promised. And a child grew up. And one day the child went out to his father who was in the fields with the harvest workers. And he complained to his father, Oh, my head, my head. And his father said to one of the young men, Carry him to his mother. So he picked up the boy and brought him to his mother. And he sat on his mother's lap until noon. And he died. And she carried him up into the prophet's room and laid him on the bed for the man of God. And she went out and closed the door. And she said to her husband, Give me one of the young men and one of the donkeys so that I might hurry to the man of God and then come back. And he said, Why go to him today? It's not new moon or Sabbath. And she said, Don't worry about it. She saddled the donkey and said to the young man, Drive the donkey hard and do not slow down unless I say so. So she came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her from a distance, he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, it's the Shunammite woman. Run and meet her and ask, Is it okay with you, with your husband, with your son? And she answered, Things are okay. But when she came to the man of God at the mountain, she grabbed hold of his feet, and Gehazi came up to push her away. But Elisha said, leave her, for she is distraught. But the Lord has hidden from me the reason and has not told me why. And the woman said to him, did I ask you for a son, sir? Didn't I say, don't raise my hopes? And Elisha said to Gehazi, Get ready. Take my staff and go. If you meet anyone along the way, don't greet them. And if anyone greets you, don't reply. Put my staff on the boy's face. But the woman said to Elisha, I swear by your life and the Lord's life, I will not leave you so Elisha got up and went with her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them, and he set the staff on the boy's face. But there was no sound or response. So he went back to Elisha and told him, the boy did not wake up. When Elisha came to the house, he saw the boy lying dead on his bed, and he went in and closed the door behind the two of them. And then he prayed to the Lord, and he got up on the bed and lay down on top of the child, putting his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, and his hands on the child's hands. And as he bent over him, the boy's flesh began to warm. And so the man of God got down, paced back and forth in the house, 
And once again, he got up on the bed and bent over the boy, at which point the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And Elisha called for Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. And Gehazi called her, and she came to Elisha, and he told her, Pick up your son. And she came and fell at his feet, her face to the ground, and then she picked up her son and left. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. We're going to find as we look at this story today is that following the living God is a journey of imitation and resurrection. It's a journey of imitation and resurrection. Following the living God is a journey of imitation and resurrection. Remember those two. Imitation first. So this is a great story, right? But didn't it sound a little familiar? If you've been around these last few weeks, didn't it sound just a little familiar? A prophet befriends a woman. Um, There's a miracle that happens. She feeds him. A son dies only to be miraculously raised from the dead. Doesn't it sound familiar? It was just a few weeks ago. It was 1 Kings 17. We were outside, and it was a story about Elijah, Elisha's mentor and predecessor, He was staying with a widow in Zarephath during a three-year drought, and the son got sick and died, only to be raised again. And there are many remarkable similarities between these two stories. Both sons' lives are miracles. The first son was as good as dead. The widow was ready to make the last of their food and then give up and die The prophet shows up miraculously providing for them. Hope returns to their lives. They move from death into life. In the second story, the woman is barren, and a son is conceived miraculously and born as a joyous gift. In both cases, the son's lives are miracles and sources of hope. But then in both stories, the sons grow sick and then die. Both mothers run to the prophet And plead with them. Both remark in some way about how the first miracle just raised their hopes to crush them all the worse when the child dies. Both sons are brought to an upper room where the prophet is staying. Both sons are laid on the prophet's bed. Both prophets pray to God and then lay on top of the dead children, though Elijah does it three times and Elisha only has to do it twice. Both sons are raised from the dead and then given back to their mothers. These stories are remarkably similar. And I think that they are so similar because Elisha is imitating Elijah, his predecessor. And it's not just here. It's throughout the stories of Elisha in 2 Kings. We find him performing the same miracles that Elijah had done before him. It's like he's traveling around Israel imitating his old master, preaching the same message, praying the same prayers, performing the same miracles. Elisha is out living this life of faith by imitation. And the Christian life is lived in the same way. It's a pretty basic idea, but in our day it's somewhat strange that the Christian life is lived by imitation, not by innovation. We're not sent off to make our own way in the world, to make it up as we go, to find out what simply works for us and go for it. When Jesus calls his disciples, he says, come and follow me. It's about imitation in his way. 
When Paul writes to the churches, he says, imitate me, not because he's so great, but because he's imitating Christ who went before him. And that way of imitation is passed down generationally through the church. And we learn the faith as it's passed down to us by watching how it's lived out, by watching those who've gone before us, faithful Christians, seeing what they do, seeing how they talk about faith, seeing what they believe in, seeing how they live, and imitating, doing it ourselves. Now, we don't copy. Elisha doesn't do exactly what Elijah does. The goal isn't to make carbon copies of one person in the church. As it's been said, there are no dittos in souls. It's not copying, but it is imitation. We learn by watching how others do it and taking that way on ourselves. And this isn't really unique to faith either. This is how we learn almost everything in the world. If you've raised children, you know this. From their first facial expressions and their first words, they are imitating us. That's why it's so important for parents to model faith because our children pick up far more over the years by watching what we do than by hearing what we say. They will do what they see us doing, not what they hear us saying. Which is why I had no one to blame but myself the first time our kids dropped a swear word in a fight with each other. And which is why we're trying, not always succeeding, but trying very hard to model how to deal well with emotions, especially anger, and to express them in healthy ways because they're watching what we're doing and they're doing what they see us doing. So much in life we learn by imitation and faith is no different. The Christian life is lived as imitation. So who are you imitating? Who are you watching? Who are you giving your attention to because it's shaping who you are becoming? Who are you gathering around yourself? Call it discipleship, call it mentoring, call it something else. Who are you imitating? And who are you bringing along behind you? We're going to celebrate a baptism this morning. And as Hudson comes to these waters of baptism, you all are going to stand and wholeheartedly promise to love, encourage, and support this brother to do a few things as you have hundreds of children before him, to teach the gospel of God's love, to be an example of Christian faith and character, and to give the strong support of God's family in fellowship, prayer, and service. And the young people in our church desperately need you to follow through on those promises. They need relationships with Christians a little further on ahead of them whom they can follow and imitate. They need to see you living your faith. They need to see it make a difference in your life so they can begin to wonder about what difference it might make in theirs. This isn't just a role for parents. We need all of you. And as a parent, believe me, we need all of your help. Following the living God is a journey of imitation. In these stories, we find Elisha imitating Elijah, and hundreds of years later, we'll find Jesus imitating both of them when he comes in Luke 7 to a widow in Nain, a town that's basically in the same place as Shunem was, and raising her dead son to life again. Even Jesus is imitating in the way of the prophets. The life of faith is lived as imitation. Following God is a journey of imitation. But it's also a journey of 
resurrection. When Elisha realizes what's happened to this young boy, he sends Gehazi with his staff to place it on the boy's face. Gehazi rushes on ahead, but when nothing happens, he returns to the prophet now on his way to tell him that the boy is still dead. Elisha himself arrives, closes the door behind them, prays to the Lord, and then climbs into bed with the boy, an action we shouldn't miss. Dead bodies are unclean, and that uncleanness spreads to any who touch them. There were very strict rules about maintaining this ritual purity and avoiding death. And yet Elisha crawls into bed anyway, laying himself on top of the boy, Shrinking himself down, bending over him, meeting his mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. And as he shrinks himself down to lay on the boy, the boy's skin warms. He gets down, paces back and forth, gets on again, and the boy sneezes seven times and opens his eyes. It's a story of resurrection. The boy was clear enough dead. His mother knew him to be dead. She left. Gehazi wasn't able to raise or rouse him at all. He lay dead in that bed for quite a while during all this traveling. This is no resuscitation story. It is resurrection. He was dead, and then he wasn't. It's resurrection. And the story of God's life triumphing over death. For Elisha, as the holy man of God, bears something of God's presence and life with him. And as he climbs into bed with that dead boy, the story of death and uncleanness and darkness that rules the world in which we live is directly confronted. And what we find is that the uncleanness doesn't contaminate Elisha, as we'd expect. But God's holiness in him contaminates the uncleanness. That the death in the boy doesn't infect Elisha, but that the life in Elisha infects this dead boy. What we find is that the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not, cannot, and will not overcome it. The story is about a miracle of resurrection. And as we've said a number of times through this story, these miracles are not done as parlor tricks. Oh, how neat and cool it is that these things can happen. Each of the miracles in Scripture anticipate the kingdom of God that is coming. They are glimpses within our world, within our space-time continuum of the kingdom of God bursting in. They're pictures of the end toward which God is bringing all things. They are the end reaching back into the present. And these aren't to be considered normal. They are glimpses. Only a handful of people in the Bible experience or even witness a resurrection. They're not the norm for God's people, but when they are given by God's grace, they're glimpses for all of us of what God means to do and one day will do for all creation. And so what we see God means to do is to challenge death on its own ground and destroy it forever. This miracle points us forward to Jesus' resurrection and beyond it to what we will call in the Apostles' Creed a little while later this morning, the resurrection of the dead. 
It's the day coming when Christ returns, when raises from the dead all who've entrusted their lives to him to give them bodies that are new and whole, bodies fit to live forever in heaven and earth that are brought together in what Jesus is doing. This is the story of resurrection. And this story points us forward to the resurrection, a greater one. For this boy that was raised will go on to die again. Just like the widow's son Elijah raised earlier, just like the widow's son Jesus will raise later, just like Lazarus whom Jesus raises in John 11. But the resurrection to come is a greater one. When death itself will be defeated forever. It's a greater resurrection of the dead that comes when a greater son is conceived and born miraculously, dies tragically, and is raised unexpectedly. It's a greater resurrection that comes when a greater prophet empties himself and comes to join us in the bed of death, shrinks himself down from the glory of heaven to take on our form and likeness, to become like us in every way, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, to come even to the point of death, even death on a cross, to take our death and give us his life. The greater resurrection is the resurrection we see burst into the world in Jesus. And it's a resurrection like his that will be ours one day. For our story, too, is now a story of resurrection. We no longer live the story of death. What God means to do in you is not just a renovation job. It's not a new coat of paint on the walls of your life. It's not just to freshen things up a bit. God means to resurrect you. God means for you to die and rise again as we proclaim in the waters of baptism. God means to bring you to life abundant and everlasting. Do you think that's impossible? Do you think all hope is lost for you? Have you given up hope of transformation, of becoming who God wants you to be, of finding life that is abundant? of ever getting out of this story of death that our world keeps telling. Well, come and follow Jesus. Come and imitate the greater son, the greater prophet. Come and worship the one who says in Revelation 1, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and to the grave. This is a story of resurrection, of God's life that defeats our death, of the light that shines in darkness which the darkness cannot overcome. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for the great cloud of witnesses that stretches off behind us and for the one that stretches off in front of us as well. We thank you for those men and women of faith whose lives we can look to and imitate, who can lead us along in this way. We thank you, too, for those who come before us, whom we can be examples for ourselves. And we thank you that in all of this string, you yourself are head. That this is not a story simply of progress and getting 
incrementally better across time, but is a story of resurrection. That in the midst of death, life is possible. Life, in fact, wins. Light and life are all that is true. So, Lord, as we come to these waters of baptism, imprint again upon our hearts that we have died and been raised. We pray this, O Christ, in your name. Amen.